Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In the fall of 2010, a single kinder travels to the Twin Cities of Minnesota to answer the call of an elder of his clan. Join us as Marco Giovanni is pulled by family loyalty into a strange territory in which he is forced to strengthen his family's influence, yet at the same time avoid destroying himself with his own dark desires. Hello, and welcome to Twin Cities by Night Eidolon. Twin Cities by Night Eidolon is a Vampire the Masquerade duet story with Adam playing Marco Giovanni and Chris as the storyteller. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can find up-to-date news and a link to our Discord. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon at Twin Cities by Night. We hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Vampire the Masquerade, Twin Cities by Night, Eidolon. So we left off with the prelude where Marco Giovanni had been told by his ghoul, Jamie Milliner, that she had received a phone call requesting him to relocate to the Twin Cities of Minnesota and meet up with Rita Giovanni, who about 28 years previously had been a mentor of his while he was in Venice for roughly about a year. We didn't really take too much of a dive into it. One thing that we talked about during the creation preludes is that we may occasionally do flashback scenes to kind of like delve into things that may have happened in his past, which is kind of an interesting concept, kind of something experimental that I'm looking forward to trying to do. One thing before we start, I would like you, Adam, to roll 1d10 so we can see how much blood that Marco has before we start. Make it interesting. Nine, baby. Nine, that's good. I okay. rolled a nine. You're, you're disappointed. <laughs> like, I rolled a nine in case you couldn't tell by my reaction of nine, baby. I'm joking. <clears throat> All right. So your eyes snap open and there's darkness around you. And you're a little bit discompopulated until you start seeing this, a thin source of artificial light that looks like it may be coming from almost like lights that are highlighting along a wall for you to be able to see where a door's at. It almost looks like airplane lights that you see in the cabin of an airplane. And then you slowly realize that you are on an airplane right now and that you last remember going into this room that you're in, if it, if it could really be called that, because in all reality, it's probably like five feet by five feet, but it protects you from the sun. And it is a way that your family has of traveling to ensure that you precautions are taken not to expose you where normally most people could get on a flight in Boston and head to the Twin Cities and make it in the same evening. Kindred and Canites usually can't or are not allowed such ease of access when traveling and have to take precautions. And your family especially is well aware of risks it, it takes traversing across the globe and they have a network of and means of travel. So where the night previously you may have left Boston, you are now just arriving 24 hours later into the Twin Cities of Minnesota. What are you doing right now? As I come to, I'm thinking about how I, I made it. Nothing went particularly wrong. And there are things that could go wrong that I probably have considered when trying to prepare myself for this travel. So I get this sense of ease in the fact in the fact that this seems to have gone without a hitch and I should be arriving. But then it's kind of washed over with a sense of nervousness because I've never met Rita before. 
I know she's important to the family. Oh, I mean, you met her before in Venice, but you haven't met her since Venice, you're saying? Right. Yes. Yeah. Like I haven't, I'm kind of not really sure what I'm going to be walking into. I know that I need to do what I'm asked. So being here is, is priority number one. It's not really an option in my head. I just hope I can do the right thing when I'm here, not disappoint anybody, not have have this blow up in my face or anything. Now that we left, Bo- you know, now that you left Boston and you're kind of like, you know, you had to share the same city with Silvano, your uncle Silvano. I'm not sure how often you actually dealt with them once you became a kindred. But what are your feelings now, like kind of leaving and having him be in the same city as him, especially after the revelations you found out like 28 years ago about his involvement in the in how you were actually conceived and what happened to your mother afterwards to bind her? So from the moment I found out about all of that, I knew that. I was going to get revenge someday. I'm going to stab him in the back the first chance that I get. But while I lived in Boston, I just had to play nice. I have to just go along with family stuff and not really ruffle any feathers. But Marco knows in his head the first chance he gets, he's going to fuck both of them over as as hard as he can, 100%. Your uncle Claudio and Silvano? Claudio and Silvano. They're both going down. Oh, wow. Now, does he see what he's about to do now as any way of assisting him towards that goal? Or does he see it as like a distraction from that goal? Or like He ultimately hopes so. He ultimately hopes so. He sees serving the family as a way to hurt his enemies within the family. Oh, Maybe wow. if I help Rita, I can get myself in a position where I can try to wedge out Silvano and Claudio. Maybe I can turn others in the family against them kind of in... Whatever it takes, I'm going to get my revenge on both of them. I like that. I didn't see that coming, to be honest with you. So this is a nice revelation, especially, yeah, like you're currying favor within the family, which can help you. And that's one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand about the Giovanni clan is that they are like a sect in their own. And along with a sect doesn't mean that everyone gets along. It means there's this backstabbing and power plays and all that. And in a way, looking back on when you were embraced almost 30 years ago, Silvano was obviously upset because he thought he was going to be bringing you over and it was someone else. And it was this weird tension now over that. So that's a good thing. So, so those thoughts ran through your head. What are you doing now? So I'm in the plane right now. You are in this room. Yes. Which, or this little container, which is in the plane, you know, though, that there's a door. That's what those lights were. They're almost, I, I can't think of the term. They're almost like tracer lights or lights that go around a door to identify a power's off where an exit's at. You will even see like there's like an exit, you know, a little exit sign above it, but that where you can see where the door's at. But it's basically you were pretty much like laying down in this room or sitting down in this room in this little small container that is almost like a like a closet in a way, like a storage compartment. I'm just wondering to myself how long I'm going to be waiting here before Jamie or somebody else is going to come retrieve me. I'm not going to I'm not going to start poking around on my own. I feel like that would be just way too dangerous. Uh. So, I'm just kind of waiting. Surely Jamie's on top of this and she's going to come grab me from here any second and bring me to the location. I'm really not used to worrying about these types of things myself. Jamie takes care of a lot of things for me. She, in some ways, she's like an assistant. So you are sitting there, and then you hear a slide, and then you hear hear the door open, and you see light come in, and it blinds you for a little bit, and you see a silhouette of a figure standing there. But also, when you see the silhouette, you hear the sounds of a plane 
plane engines and you kind of feel that tilt a little bit that the plane is probably descending or starting to descend and you see the silhouette she's shaped to be about five foot six and you can tell that she probably has like a, a skirt on and like a like a kind of like a female power suit but having it be a skirt but you can't quite make out the colors because of the light that's coming from the plane and this source which you understand to be jamie's voice cuts through the darkness and her voice is very sharp very disciplined and has a slight twinge of a southern accent you know that jamie is from baltimore which it rides that line of being close to the south still and almost to the north and she has kind of a virginia twang in her voice because you knew for a while she grew up in virginia and she goes we are about to descend if you want to come sit out here, I can brief you on some things that I found out. So Marco will kind of peek his head out and try to just make sure that he's in a safe area. He kind of feels like a an animal right now. Mm-hmm. He usually feels like a predator on top of on top of the world and above everybody else. And he feels a little bit vulnerable. He can feel that he is relying on Jamie for his safety right now. And that thought does not comfort him. Although he does trust Jamie very much, he doesn't like to have his his life in her hands in this way. So she, ste- she steps out of the doorway, and as she steps out of the doorway, you see the cabin of a private jet. You know that on one side, what you can see right now, there's tan leather like couch, and on the other side, there's another tan leather couch. And then you see curtains ahead, which you know if you were to open up those curtains, that there's individual seats, like four individual seats, two on each side that have like a nice little table in front of them for if you want to sit up there. And she goes and she you see her sit down on one of the couches on the uh, the couch on the left, and you can actually hear the leather crunch a little bit as she crosses her legs, and you can even hear the zip of her unzipping this leather carry like folder like like almost like a briefcase in a way but it's almost a a planner an organizer that she has and she just sits there patiently as she waits for you to leave the room leave the storage area so i get up and i start moving and i make my way towards the couch where she's sitting and i sit down a little bit close to her i don't like to sit across from her and talk out loud i'd rather just sit close to her because of the type of bond we have i know she's not going to reject me sitting close to her yeah you actually find that you that that you are able to be this close to her and she doesn't feel uncomfortable around you it kind of brings you back to this memory of when you were first told to give her the proxy kiss how do you though give her the proxy kiss how is it that you choose to bestow upon her your vitae which which kind of indentures her to you that's actually an interesting question and something i hadn't really considered I would think that because of the the type of lifestyle that Marco lived before his embrace, the type of sexual subculture he was involved with, he would probably incorporate that type of mentality into the way that he did the proxy kiss. Not saying it would be some kind of anything like that, but it would very much just be this power thing where he gives her his vitae and you know, it, it would probably be kind of like almost like a ritualistic thing that they do together. It's not like, do you have any like examples in mind or are you talking about like mixing almost like a Catholicism with what your your power trip that you have, but not being a, not being sexual so much, but making it where she definitely knows that you are in control? 
Right. Actually, I really like that. Uh, it's definitely not sexual, but it is like a perverted reflection of Catholicism, ref- perverted reflection of like sacraments or something. Yeah. And he's giving her this sacrament and she drinks the blood and receives his gift. And it's very much this kind of disturbing act that they do together behind closed doors. And he knows it's a bad thing. He knows that he's made her life worse by introducing this to her. And the parts of his humanity that he still holds on to might feel something about that. But at the end of the day, that never really matters. Yeah. And you find too, especially with her personality, because it's, it's always, it was probably awkward when you, when she was first, when you were first tasked to give her the proxy, you know, it's almost like an apprenticeship for some members of, you know, like the milliners, the Duncerns, whatever, the Pissanobs, you know, the Putinescas, whatever families are kind of under that Giovanni umbrella. It's almost like an apprenticeship. So she can't, she was tapped, she was assigned to you. And you found what, when you met her, she was completely different than you. And the fact that she's from the South, she's not of Italian background. She has very blonde hair and has like slight freckles on her nose. She has very sharp features. She has very thin lips and you can tell by her bone structure that she probably comes from an uneducated aspect of society originally, or she has that somewhere in her strand. Now, you know, the Milners are a prestigious family and you know that they are embedded in American politics and you know, you know, there's outlayers to everything in all these families. There, there are little umbrellas, little sleeper cells of these families that, you know, one, one person marries someone of the wrong blood, you know, some, some rich Milner falls in love with some country bumpkin girl and insists that he's going to give her this good life. And it adds this other cell to this huge organism. And so when you met her the first time, you saw that she was very businesslike and she was very almost, uh, uh, the ter- almost asexual in the fact that she was all purpose and was all drive when she met you, but she's not a bloviator. She's a very few words. She's an observer. And so when you first bestowed your vitae upon her in this, in this mockery of, of the sacrament to, 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 to bolster your feeling of control, she did it with, with a meticulous intensity to, because she knew that this was part of what her existence now was. And so there was this, you know, I would say like the first few months, it was this, still this feeling out process of getting to know her. She never spoke of anything personal. She never showed a total adoration that you were expecting from her that you were told would happen. Not in a love and emotional kind of way, but you soon saw that was purposeful kind of way. Like your success was her driving factor. And you this was solidified and this was nailed down one evening when you woke up. This was probably like 1993, 1992, 1993. And you working at Colburn had been trying to broker a deal and you had mentioned in passing out of just frustration about how you couldn't get to a certain term or agreement done and it was stopping this deal from happening and in your head when you said that at that time you knew it was some businessman in the boston area but it was very minuscule to you because you were so consumed with your your plots of vengeance and your plot you know against your two uncles or whatever but this one evening you woke up and you walk into your living room of your haven and you saw her sitting there, which caught you off guard. And she was sitting on your couch and she was in her panties and her uh, bra, but they were cotton and they're very basic in their design. Cause almost like her, her underwear were just to serve a purpose. And that was to shield her 
her nether regions and her breasts and you saw splattered all over her body was blood and you looked on the floor and you saw this plastic sheet was rolled out on the floor of your living room and you see the body the naked body of this one man who was stopping that deal from happening and you looked back at jamie and you realized at that moment there was a connection with you two with the fact that yes your vitae did bring out the worst in her and brought out that ultimate competitor in her and she took what you said in one simple comment and she took extreme measures for your success there. How did that make you feel when you saw that? His initial reaction was to be outraged, but he was, he just couldn't be. He was so amazed and so proud. It, first, she was just a task to him. You're going to give her the proxy kiss. You're going to use her, do whatever. And he, did, he just thought of it as him going along with the family. He didn't realize how close to this person he would feel. And it's just this weird feeling of trust that he just never had with people before his embrace. And it's just so strange to him and so weird that he wants to shove it all deep back inside somewhere because he doesn't even like to acknowledge it because he feels like a monster. But at the same time, he feels this tremendous amount of care for this person because they clearly care so much about him. And he knows why. He knows how this whole thing works. He's not an idiot, but he can't help but feel it. It's very real. So does is that why you've never re- really have done anything sexual with her? And also, have you ever fed off her before? Or is that something like you don't touch, feed off her because of this connection? First of all, he doesn't really engage in any kind of like sexual natured things anymore. He doesn't visit S&M clubs. He doesn't engage in that type of activity since his embrace that was something that he only engaged with before his embrace okay Uh, so he would never he would never look at her through that lens also he is never fed off or nor would he consider feeding off of her that's just a line he will not cross so how are you how is marco handling it knowing that it might not even i mean like the thought of embracing her or maybe that he won't be selected to embrace her you know with how that all goes like are there thoughts going on in your head about that or as of now it's just she's your ward at the moment he's thought about it he thinks that maybe he could give her the gift eventually i mean he does have big plans that would probably seem far-fetched to anybody else in the family and he's never shared those plans with anybody obviously not even her not even her Ah, so she doesn't know about your plot of wanting revenge on your your uncles. She knows I hate both of them, but she doesn't know that I have any intentions of doing anything. She definitely thinks that I'm just content to pretend to be polite for the sake of the type of thing we have going here. But at the same time, I also think about this is no life for anybody, especially somebody like her. Maybe she could walk away from all of this someday. But like he knows that it's just too late for that. I mean, he knew years ago it was too late for that because he's just been giving her Vitae for a while. And, you know, the as time passes and that possibility just disappears, he starts to think about maybe I could bring her into the fold in a more serious way. She has proven to be very trustworthy. He would he would he would trust his life in her hands and he sees what he has now as a very important gift to have and nothing to be gambled. Now, one final question about your relationship with Jamie. Does she know about like your dark arts, the necromancy, or is that something that you kind of, cause she's never shown any kind of like 
drive to want to know it. You know what I mean? Her, you can see definitely that her goals are very of this world, you know, power, control, influence, stuff like that. So Marco would never discuss necromancy with anybody who's uninitiated, period. The type of stuff that he does occurs behind closed doors in situations where Jamie is not welcome. I would say that she definitely has seen things, you know, maybe walked in on a ritual or two and he's shut the door and that's just something they never talk about. But she probably has seen some things that humans, even even ghouls that are in the know, should not see. She's definitely walked in on some type of ghostly activity before. Do, do you think it had any effect on her sanity? Most likely, most likely, but she keeps it together. If not for her addiction to my vitae, then her sternness, something else. Her yeah, sternness. her her razor approach. You know, like her lack of emotion that she shows on her face at all. Matter of fact, you never have probably seen her lose her temper. Even that moment when you found her on the couch and she was kind of catatonic, catatonic. You were surprised because, like, a she she you you were able to figure out that she probably sexually enticed this man to come here and then she used the opportunity to murder him which are two things that are seem very out of the ordinary for her you know like you go ahead she's a a more cold calculated person than just an outright violent person Mm -hmm. and he he feels like the way that she is now since receiving the kiss if he had known her before he received the gift the two of them, like the way that she is now and the way that he was then, he could have like fixed his life, he thinks, if, if he had just gone with her or something. Oh, wow. He had met somebody who was as sociopathic as she is on, on his vitae when, before he had nearly as much of these problems. He feels like he could have changed his life for the better. He could have maybe just connected with another person and not had his negative emotions reflected so poorly with his decisions and the types of things that he did. So he has like this really weird kind of thing with her, but it's a 100% like, like almost professional type of relationship that they have together because he respects his, he respects Jamie more than basically more than anybody. And it's like, he would, he would probably kill if somebody messed with, with her, you know? He would probably go against the family if somebody messed with her. And he likes to think that like nothing is ever going to come. Like it's never going to come to that. Nobody's ever going to try to interfere with what I have here, but I'm worried about what would happen if they did. I'm worried about what I would do. I'm worried about what that would mean for me if I lashed out against the family because they have different plans for her than I end up having. And so he's kind of like, it's a dangerous thing. He's not really... He's not really sure how it's going to all play out. And he knows that he has nothing but time. And that kind of worries him. For sure. For sure. It's so that's a really deep relationship that you have. It's almost like she's, you're kind of in love with her. She's almost like a mother figure, professional. Like it's this weird, complicated relationship that you have with her. It's not definitely a one-sided. He uses her for everything. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. She fits many roles. Wow, that's amazing. So when you go and sit next to her on the couch, you see that she's wearing this gray charcoal like skirt and she has a charcoal like female suit top on with a white blouse underneath. You see she has black shoes on that have 
like a two inch heel, not super high heel or one inch heel. You smell a very faint trace of like a perfume, a flowery perfume, but just enough, just slight enough to draw attention to her, but not enough to overpower and not enough to, it's not like she's sending out a call to be noticed, but sending out a call that she's normal, that she's like everyone else. That's why she puts that on there. And you can smell a little bit of her shampoo that she uses in her hair as you sit like a foot away from her. And she has her planner zipped up or unzipped. And you see she has like a yellow notepad, like a large notepad that where she's taking notes. And she goes, we are dissenting now. When we arrive, we will be driven to Rita's Haven by a driver that I've hired ahead of time. A couple of things I would like to brief you on at first before you go into the meeting with her to make sure that you're fully prepared, or at least things that I was able to put together. Rita has a companion who has been proxied to her. His name is Roman Dunsern. Go ahead and uh, give me a uh, manipulation, or excuse me, not manipulation, perception and politics roll, and we will do a difficulty six, please. Just one success. One is a good amount of success. Uh, one's good. At, so you saw Roman a few times in your year in Venice. Now that year in Venice went by rather quick and you didn't see him often, but you saw him a few times. He was a Scottish man who, you know, has owns or is the, the head of a company called Dunstern Organic Consultants based out of Boston. Now, like I said, you only saw him a couple times during your time in Venice. Never really had a conversation with him. Matter of fact, most of the time that you saw Rita in Venice was just you and her, and it was random meeting spots throughout the city where you would spend evenings together and go your own way, and and find you were discovering what you were at that moment. But there are undercurrents of rumors and innuendos that flow through the family about Roman. Matter of fact, about his family, period. You know what? I'm going to have you roll one more roll. Roll me a perception and a cult roll, please. Difficulty six. Did you choose a specialty for your cult, by the way? I don't think I chose one, but I would say it would be ghosts or spirits if that's a... Uh, spirits, yeah. We'll do ghosts or spirits. So. Okay. Yeah, but uh, perception and a cult, please. Difficulty six. So my perception plus a cult roll, I got six successes, I think. Holy cow, shit. You had a one also, so five successes, but still it's good. So you got five successes. Through the 28 years of channeling yourself and pulling knowledge from rumors and from writings and from those of your family, you have found that the Dunsterns, and you know for a fact the Dunsterns are a macabre family from Scotland. You know that they are a family that comes from a long tradition of cannibals who resided in the area, who have this weird, this weird mixture of nobility economic smarts influence but yet horrendous violent sadistic urges and they haven't even had the the blood vitae in their family where unlike your family which through years of incest and god knows what other kind of manipulation and meandering by these unseen forces the dunsterns were at their core before the giovanni brought them into the fold monstrosities in their own and you have seen that in a weird way with your interactions that you may have had with Dunsters. Now, I'm not saying every Dunstern is some cannibalistic monster that feasts on people, you know, for every meal, 
But you have seen that in those, even when you were immortal, now that you look back reflectively when you were at those golf course luncheons or, you know, a lot <laughs> drinking champagne in the morning while eating eggs Benedict, you, you could see in the mannerisms and their intensity at times. And you look back now with the lens of the beast and you can see that like these people in their DNA have a long lineage of being rooted to the meat. Then to come to that one success of manipulation and politics, you have heard some rumors of Roman. You've heard that Roman has been proxied to Rita for a long time, for longer than you have been in existence, period, from your mortal life, which is odd because that's a very long time. But you also have heard some under rumblings of some distinct acquired tastes that Roman may have. And you have heard slight rumors of children maybe being part of that. What does that make you feel knowing all that knowledge that you have kind of picked up and then to be told about Roman at this time? Like, well, what are your opinions on that? So it's kind of, Marco sees it in a kind of complicated way. The type of things that Marco does are also very bad and disturbing. And he, some part of him understands that the path to power involves lots of things that other people can't understand. And he doesn't understand what secret there is in eating other people. But he also knows that rituals call for blood. The path to power is always going to be one that requires sacrifice. And so he kind of understands what they do. He still is kind of shocked by it, especially Roman's thing. He thinks of it as maybe just more of a perversion than a necessity. Another thing that Marco is dealing with, he's very intimidated by Rita. He doesn't know what it's going to be like in her city. And he, the time that he spent with her in Venice is going to be totally different than the time that he's going to be spending with her in her own stomping grounds. And he's an outsider here. And he's just, he's just not really sure where he's going to fit into all this. He knows that rumors about Roman and rumors about the Duncern family are more than likely true. He is not there to question that or judge that, simply not his place. And as horrifying as it is, he hopes that maybe some of it is kind of more blown up than maybe some of it is more gossip, family gossip and stuff like that, as far as the extent or severity of of how they do that type of stuff. But he knows. All, all of our families have dark secrets. So she, as after she mentions that, she also says there are also locations, branches of Colburn Trust here and Dunstern Organic Consultants. And she hands you like these stapled sheets that have print out and you see like there's like bar graphs and information. She's like, here's information on each location. And she hands it to you in this folder here. And she's like, from what I can also have been able to gather is that there are probably two other people who are proxied here. They are two Putinesca brothers. I have not been able to get their names. All I know is that their father was recently brought over, uh, I think within the last five years. Also, I, uh, and she, you see her pause for a moment and then she's like, I don't want to say this without fully knowing, but I believe there might be a member of my family who is somehow involved in the city here, but I've yet to been able to confirm it through any channels of mine. And then she closes. Go ahead. Oh, that's interesting, Jamie. Maybe you can have a little bit of a reunion. And he just kind of looks at her. He knows that she probably will not be amused by 
<laughs> any type of joke or she just looks at you like thinly you see like her thin lips are almost colorless as she just like looks at you and you can see her gray hazel eyes are just like staring at you for a moment and then she looks back down at her planner and zips it up and she's like we are currently dissenting when we get off we will have the driver pick us up do you need anything else from me that's it jamie thank you and she gets up and you see her like walk past the curtains and you see her sit in one of the seats and you can hear the clack of like the of the belt as she locks it in and then you hear over the intercom please take your seats we'll be dissenting in minneapolis international airport oh we are at a smooth flying weather of 65 degrees getting a little chilly here in the fall time uh thank you again and we appreciate for you choosing us to for your transportation needs if you enjoyed eidolon i highly recommend checking out our ghouls fatal addiction series called servitude set in the same continuity It will give you a glimpse of major events and people of influence in the Twin Cities. And if you find you can't get enough, jump right into our main series starting with the negligence story arc.